Welcome to the October 25th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Jeremiah 6 through 8 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, what we see here is uh, some housekeeping things. Paul is telling Timothy how it is that he's to relate to um, those who are older than him, how he is to kind of triage the needs within the church as to who to help and who not to help, particularly in regard to widows. Um, and uh, then he's going to talk about some things that directly relate to the position of pastor and uh, pay and things like that. So let's, let's uh, go through this verse by verse. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with all purity. Okay, so basically, uh, he's telling Timothy, okay, you're a young guy, and uh, so you've got people that are your age, but you certainly have people in the church that are older than you. So he said, I want to tell you how to talk to them. He said, when you're referring to someone who is older than you, well, even if they are in sin, even if they are in sin, he said, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him. Okay, so the desired end is still the same, that he would stop the sin and do the right thing, that he would pursue godliness, holiness. But he said, how you do it is a big thing. He said, don't rebuke him. Don't talk your down your nose to him. Don't you, you know, really give him a tongue lash and don't you do that. He's older than you. Show respect to those who are older than you. But don't remain silent either. So don't rebuke him but exhort him, encourage him to do the right thing. Um, try to talk in ways that are respectful, but yet call him to holiness. And so as pastors, every pastor needs to be so careful how it is that we relate. So regarding uh, Timothy, he's a male. So as he talks to <clears throat> older males, he is to do so respectfully. Younger men as brothers. So, yeah, you know, when you're talking to your brother, man, nothing's off limits. I mean, you, you can be rude. You can talk harsh. You know, you, you, you can just talk business. He said talk to the guys your age. Talk to them like brothers. Um, yeah, you love each other. You need to respect each other. That's what uh, Jesus has called us to. He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So when Timothy was dealing with someone who was a contemporary, someone who was about his age, um, it was supposed to be done in love. But he was he wasn't bound by the the respecting authority, respecting elders um, that he was bound by uh, with the older guys. So it essentially Paul is telling Timothy it all depends on the gender and the age of the person as to how you address them, as to how you you deal with them. Uh, he said uh, older women as mothers, right? So the older women as mothers. Well, the assumption is is that you're not going to disrespect your mom. You're not going to talk harshly to her. Uh, if, if she's doing something that is wrong, well, you're going to encourage her to do the right thing, but you're going to encourage, not rebuke. And so essentially, it's the same thing that 
Uh, Paul told Timothy regarding the, the men, don't rebuke them, but exhort them, encourage them to do the right thing. And then he says, the younger women as sisters, just like he said, the younger men as brothers, but with the women, he says, with all purity. And so Paul is saying, okay, you know, the younger men, you deal with them. You know, if they're in sin, you deal with it. You call it what it is, and you deal with it. You call them to holiness. You call them to repentance. You call them to holiness. The younger women treat them like sisters with all purity. He didn't say that when Timothy was relating with guys, but he did say it when Timothy was relating with the opposite gender. And uh, so he's, you know, essentially what he's implying is be very careful when you are around um, other women your age. Um, don't get too familiar with them, you know. Um, just be very careful in how you address them and, uh, you know, where you address them, you know. I mean, you, you need to make sure that you're in a public place. You don't, you always want to be above reproach. And so just be very careful, Paul was saying, as you deal with women who are your age. And this, this is great counsel for us. This is what the Word of God, the Word of God is telling us that as we deal with people who are doing things that are wrong, we need to think about their gender, we need to think about their age, and, de- and thinking about how it is that we deal with it. Okay, well, let's, let's keep on going. Verse 3, support widows who are genuinely in need. So widows did not have Medicare. They didn't have Social Security. There was no government program to help them if they were widows, if they had no man. And, and generally, it was the men that went out and worked. The women would stay at home and do some work maybe around the house or maybe do some work uh, there if they had, you know, if they were growing a garden or something like that. But generally, women just couldn't bring in the money that the guys could. And so if a woman lost her husband, she was in dire straits, especially if she had no family to help her. And so Paul said, support widows who are genuinely in need. This is Paul saying, Timothy, you lead the church to help those ladies who genuinely have a need. So, But he's going to qualify this. Verse 4, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and then repay their parents, for this pleases God. Right? He said, But if that widow has family, let the family take care of her, because that's what pleases God. That's what puts a smile on his face. And this is something that the church should always be careful of. You know, we're, we're far too... Sometimes the church... <laughs> Sometimes I think people in the church are more interested in getting a good feeling inside of their heart than they are about thinking of how it is that they could genuinely help the person in need, right? Instead of thinking, how can I really help this person? Instead of that, they're thinking, how can I get a good feeling in my heart? Well, the problem is, is that if we're going after the good feeling, we're not going to treat others wisely. Uh, Paul was saying, you need to act wisely. You know, there are people in your church who were in need, but the church shouldn't feel compelled to do something about those needs every single time those needs come up. If that person who has a need, in this case it's a widow, but it can apply to other situations as well, if that person has a family, particularly if they're a Christian family, let that family take care of them. 
That's the first line of defense. Church, don't you jump in and do what a family's supposed to do. That family is supposed to be the one who takes care of their own. So you let them take care of the widow or take care of the one in need. Verse 5. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also that they will be above reproach. And so Paul is even saying, okay, this is even a distinguishing trait of someone in need that would help the church to determine whether they would help or how much they would help. It's how serious is this person about following the Lord? It seems to me that what Paul is doing is saying, we want to help people grow in their walk with the Lord even through their time of need. And there are ways that we can handicap someone by meeting a need in a way that is not helpful. And so Paul is saying, okay, regarding those that, uh, you know, the widows that are serious about their walk with the Lord and they continue night and day in their petitions and prayers, well, those are individuals that if they have a need, they've got no family, you reach out and you help them. But he said, however, he, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so there were some widows who were self-indulgent. What's that talking about? Maybe she was taken to, to wine, you know? Maybe food was her crutch, any number of things where she was just self-indulging. The church ought to be very careful about helping someone so that they can continue in sin, right? The church should think. And when I say church, I'm talking about the leadership. It's not like the whole church needs to be involved in somebody's business. The church needs to have designated individuals who oversee that. And uh, what, what this is, is this is essentially what I see is Paul saying, I want you to be ready to help someone who is legitimately in need, but don't help those who have families because the families ought to be helping. And don't really be too quick to help those who are in sin, because if you help them, then they're just going to continue in that. Give them incentive to pursue holiness. Give them incentive to pursue holiness. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is not talking about the widow here. He's talking about the family member, and particularly he's talking about the male family member. He's using the masculine pronoun, and he's saying if someone does not, if a man does not take care of his house, then he is worse than an unbeliever. He says he is worse. He's worse than somebody who's going to hell. <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad. But uh, that we see here that not only does Christianity demand a strong work ethic, but Christianity demands that uh, especially the men in the household take care of their family, take care of their family. If they don't, they are worse than unbelievers. They're worse than somebody on their way to hell. And so there's a sense of family responsibility that's a part of a Christian ethic. Verse 9, no widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. And so it appears that there was a list 
uh, at the church at Ephesus, and maybe in other churches as well, a list of individuals, a list of widows that the church took care of. That the church said, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious about where your meals are coming from. You don't have to worry about your clothing. When your clothing wears out, the church is going to help you. The church is stepping in. But Paul gave stipulations. Um, you know, previously he had said, you know, it very clearly was implied if they have family, they're not on the list because the family should take care of them. If they are not serious about their walk with the Lord, then they're not on the list because we're not going to put people on the list and the church takes care of them so that they can remain in sin, remain in those things that are displeasing to God. The church should not do such a thing. Everything we do should help, inspire, motivate, encourage godliness. We don't affirm anything that would keep someone in sin. Well, then he also gets into what we just read, that if anyone is uh, less than 60 years old, which at that time, 60 was a very old age. It's not old now. It's only yeah, eight years older than me right now. That's not old at all. <laughs> but, uh, but back then, 60 was very old. Um, people just didn't live as long back then. And so Paul put that age up and said, okay, you know, you can take care of those that are way up in age and definitely cannot take care of themselves. But he said that she, in order to be on the list, needs to have been the wife of one husband. Now, this is the same words that were used in 1 Timothy 3. She needs to have been a one man kind of woman. This is the opposite of what the pastor is to be, a one woman kind of man. Here, it's a one man kind of woman. That means that she is not someone who was known for messing around, adulteress. She isn't someone who was married and got divorced, married and got divorced, married and got divorced. No, that's not her. She was known for being someone who was faithful to her husband. Does this mean that she couldn't have been divorced at some time in her life? I don't think so because I don't, as, as you know, I taught on 1 Timothy 3, I don't believe that that is directly what it's talking about. It's talking about more than just the, the con contract of a marriage. It's talking about the hard attitude and the faithfulness to your spouse. Um, it doesn't mean that there can't be a mess up way back in the past, but it needs to be that this is who you are now. And so Paul said, if, if she has demonstrated herself, her husband's dead, and so that story's written, and so she can't do anything to fix that now. But when you look back on her relationship with her husband, what did she demonstrate that she was truly devoted to him and to him only? Or was she somebody that, you know, was... Um, it, it just she was adulterous. If she was that, then she's not on the list. The church is not going to take care of her. Once again, we see incentive that Paul was putting into this, that the church will take care of you if you have been living a godly life. And uh, some would, you know, resist this, and some would really have problems with this. But Paul, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, just wanted to make sure that everything the church does helps people grow in their walk with the Lord. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Okay, younger? Who's younger? Well, less than 60 years of age, according to the previous verse. 
refuse to enroll younger widows, but when they are, uh, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. Um, apparently, to be on the roll at the church uh, so that the church would take care of them, uh, there was a, a some sort of pledge. We don't know what that pledge was, but uh, apparently it was a pledge to celibacy, right? A pledge to celibacy, a, a pledge to not pursue a husband, that you are legitimately going to be taken care of by the church. Um, and so he said, for that reason, don't put women on that list. Don't put young women on the list, um, because he said that, you know, they will go after another husband. And is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's good. It's good for uh, a man and a woman to come together in marriage. It's good. Paul's not talking about um, that, uh, that there's something better and that's celibacy and that's living a single life. He's not talking about that here. He's just saying, he's just telling Timothy who the church is to take care of. Don't take care of the younger women. But he also says this. He said, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, right? And so if the church is taking care of them, they don't have to work, they don't have a family. They learn to be idle. They learn to be lazy going from house to house. They are not only idle, but they are also gossips and busybodies saying things they shouldn't say. And so Paul said, don't put younger women on this list so that, you know, they don't have anything to do with their time because if the church takes care of them, then they're going to find something to do with their time and they're going to, you know, just be involved and gossip and get involved in other people's business and that sort of thing. It's not good for a man to be lazy. It's not good for a woman to be lazy. And so Paul said that uh, don't put the younger women on this list for the church to take care of them. And this was not talking about just a one-time taking care. This was talking about putting them on a list where they were just for the rest of their life being taken care of by the church. Verse 14, Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to excuse us. Paul said, I want, I, I want the younger women to marry. Now, now when we went through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, Paul was kind of um, heralding the, uh, the benefits, as he presented, of uh, living a celibate life and living a single life. But here, you know, but he was just presenting that, just encouraging that, but saying it's not sin if you marry. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said that. But here he's saying, you know, the younger women, if, if they have a husband die, then there is that grieving process, of course, and they need to respect the memory of their husband, their, their deceased husband, long enough that they don't immediately jump into a next relationship. And by the way, that's, that's a safe thing to do because I've seen people jump into relationships too quickly after their spouse died. Um, they were on the rebound. They were craving relationship. They weren't thinking rationally. And usually those marriages don't last and uh, but Paul did say that you know let them go on and get remarried uh, to to marry someone else and to have children and to be busy managing their households and raising godly children so that Satan would not be able to to work with them and through them in their idleness and laziness let's get them get them busy and and house uh managing a house and raising children uh again verse 15 for some have already turned away to follow satan some have already turned away to follow satan if any believing woman has widows in her family 
Let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. And so you see this, right? The church is to step in to help those who are in legitimate need. Here, talking about widows. Um, but there are other situations where it's not necessarily long-term, but someone in the church has lost a job. They have done everything they can to um, to uh, try to bring some income in, and it's not good enough. It's not enough, and they're sinking, and maybe would chance losing their house, or I mean any number of other things. The church should seriously think about taking up love offerings and helping people in times of need. You know, I think we're going into what appears to be a pretty dark recession. There's the potential for a very dark recession ahead of us um, right now. And uh, the church needs to realize, our churches need to realize that there are people that we need to help. We need to be ready to help. This is the way we share the love of Christ, is we help each other. But we don't help everybody. Because sometimes in helping some people, we are promoting what is not pleasing to the Lord. Um, by not letting, not not expecting their family to step in to take care of them, or I mean any number of other things. So we see that principle here. Uh, hopefully, all of that has made sense. Well, now, as we get to the very next verse, we see and hear Paul talking about the office of pastor again. Verse 17, the elders, so that's just one of the three or so names in the New Testament that's used to talk about pastor. It's not just pastor. There's a few words that are used to speak of the same office, the office of pastor. So the elders, who are good leaders, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay, So the elders, the pastors, who are good leaders? Okay, so what do they lead in? Well, there's some that think, well, they need to be good leaders. They need to lead in building projects, and they need to lead in, you know, all of the extracurricular stuff that the church does in the community, and they need to lead in the, you know, in the the ministry to the those in the nursing homes, and they need to lead here and lead. There. And I'm, I'm, that is a stretch to say that that because we don't see the pastors in the New Testament doing this. Are those ministries that the church should consider doing? Well, yes, all of those and more. But a healthy church is one where, like Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, the pastors are gifted to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians 4, I believe to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so the pastor's leadership is not so much that he leads in all of the things that are going on in the church. It's that he is primarily leading the people in the church to know the Lord, to understand the truths of Scripture, to live an example in and thus in, in such a way to, to provide an example for the believers of how it is that they are to live. And so he's leading, as it were, providing this example for them to follow after. And so the leadership is, you know, in American churches, leadership, uh, pastoral leadership is all about all of the big things he leads the church to do. Well, he can certainly do that, but if that's distracting him from the preached word, the taught word, from shepherding the congregation, from loving them and serving them, helping them to grow in their walk with the Lord, then all he's done is turn the church into a business where he's not a pastor, he's a CEO, he's that kind of leader. That's not what this is talking about. 
The elders who are good leaders, who lead people in godliness, who lead them to the Lord, who lead them, lead the church to do the things that the Lord is desiring for that church to do. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. There are some translations that say honorarium, and this is really talking about money. It's not just talking about respect, it's talking about money because we're going to see that principle here in just a second in the very next verse. They're worthy of double honorarium. That means double pay. Now, I don't, Paul is not saying to pay your pastor double what everybody, that's not what he's saying. I think part of it is he's exaggerating to get his point across. He's saying they're worthy what the church gives them. If they are leading people in godliness and holiness, and if they are leading the church to be a healthier church so that God's glory is manifested in that church, and that church is the light to their community and beyond, if the pastor is leading the church in that way that the church is able to do more and more for the Lord um, and for the kingdom, well, he's worthy of whatever the church is paying him, even up to double pay, double honor. But then he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, especially those that are involved in the preaching ministry. I'm telling you, it's it, pastors notice this. Um, it, it's churches will spend hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars on a sanctuary on a sanctuary that's where they meet for worship right they pay hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars on a sanctuary where they meet maybe two three times a week in that sanctuary and that's pretty much it the sanctuary is used two or three hours a week and the primary thing that everybody says is the big important thing there is the preached word right? The, the worship is very important. The prayer, of course, is incredibly important. But when that guy steps up and says, this is what God says, this is his word to you, open your Bibles to so-and-so text, let's listen to what the Lord's going to say to us. When he gets up and preaches, um, that that's the preached word. Churches spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on a building that's used a few hours a week where the preached word seems to be the central figure. And, and there are those who go to sleep, <laughs> go to sleep. It's not important to them. They go to sleep or they marginalize it or the, you know, they're just preoccupied. It seems like it's not that important. But when you look at scripture, this is one of the most important things that a pastor does. It's not the only thing he does, but it's one of the most important thing he does. In fact, Paul is talking about the pastor that's a good leader that leads the church to be a healthy church that God can use for his glory. Well, he's worthy of everything that you're giving him. He's worthy of double honor, especially if he works hard hard at preaching and teaching, right? Works hard at preaching and teaching. The, the, the assumption is, is that the people that are a part of his church should listen to what he has worked hard to, and, and then gets up to preach and teach. What's the difference between preach and teach? It seems to me that preaching, and some would say it's volume, but I, I don't think that's, that's it. It's not, it's not volume. It, it, preaching seems to be calling for a decision right now. Teaching seems to be playing the long game. You know, preaching is I'm calling you to make it, a, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's preaching. 
Teaching is getting into God's Word so that people develop a biblical mindset, a biblical worldview. They come to understand biblical passages in their mind so that it long-term helps them to make wise decisions throughout the week. It's not a, a, a decision to make right now. It is a, it's a growth in the knowledge of the Word. And so Paul said, the one who is busy leading and especially the guy who preaches, works hard at preaching and teaching, he's worthy of what you're paying. Verse 8, Paul goes back to a favorite passage of his. He quotes this a few times in his, in his letters. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 as an illustration of his point. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker is worthy of his wages. So Paul goes back to a text in the Old Testament and said, you know, uh, there was a command in the Old Testament that the ox was not to have a muzzle, not to have something over his mouth, that as he is working and treading out the grain, that he can reach down and grab some of the grain and eat it. You know, as he's working, he has the right to eat. As he's working, he has the right to, in that field of work, reach down and satisfy his hunger. And so he uses that as an illustration. He says, the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And so he said, the pastor, as he's laboring, he ought to be able, from that field of labor, to be able to satisfy his hunger, to be able to satisfy his need, for the church to take care of him. That as he sows spiritual seed, that the church takes care of him financially. Another neat little thing is at the end of verse 18, he quotes another passage, the worker is worthy of his wages. He says, as the scripture says, a worker is worthy of his wages. Well, the interesting thing is a worker is worthy of his wages appears nowhere in the Old Testament. Uh, the word scripture in the New Testament almost always refers to the Old Testament. He says, as the scripture says, but where does the phrase, the worker is worthy of his wages, show up? Well, if you were to look at Luke chapter 10, verse 7, you would see that phrase. Do you know what Paul was saying? Not only was Jesus, did Jesus say the worker is worthy of his wages, but Luke wrote that down and Paul was calling Luke's gospel scripture. It wasn't in the 300 AD, it wasn't in the 300s that uh, the church decided which books would be scripture. Paul was determining, um, as the Holy Spirit led him, that, uh, that what Luke had wrote was scripture. It was the Bible. Uh, some say, when did they come to understand that the books that we have in the New Testament were actually part of the Bible? I'm telling you that when you look at 1 Timothy chapter verse 18, we realize that Paul was already recognizing Luke's writings as scripture. Verse 19, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Okay, so if someone says, hey, the pastor said this or the pastor did this and they're trying to incriminate him, Paul said, don't you hear an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. If one person says it, then it don't take it seriously. You can investigate it, but it probably won't be true. And where he's going to for this is he's going back to the Old Testament where it says that it's on the word of two or three witnesses that a statement is to be uh, validated. It was to be admissible in the Israelite court. Uh, Paul said that there are going to be those who are going to speak against the pastor, but there have to be two or three in order for it to be taken seriously. Verse 20, what happens if it's found that he 
literally has engaged in sin, whether in what he said or in what he's done. Verse 20, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. This says that if a pastor who lives his life publicly in the church, this says that if a pastor has been found to have engaged in sinful activity and what he has said or what he has done, and the implication is he has not repented, he's not made this right, then you don't deal with it privately. He said, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. He said, make an example of the pastor. That, uh, that public rebuke needs to be done in love, but it needs to be resolute. It needs to be firm. It needs to be one where, Pastor, we love you, but this is what you did. This is what you said. Um, and this is not becoming of a Christian. And it needs to be dealt with publicly in, I think, in a church context. Verse 21 I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Paul said, I, I, this is to be done. This is absolutely important. Just because you like a pastor uh, doesn't mean that you can overlook a fault. Don't you show favoritism. Verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Um, I remember early in ministry, I was called by the director of missions and uh, the association that I was in, uh, the second church that I was in, and uh, there was a, um, a guy who uh, a church had been, they had had him filling in for them. Uh, he was uh, preaching for them, and um, they wanted him to be the pastor, but they wanted him to be ordained, and they wanted the association to be a part of that. The only problem is, is I can't remember the exact details of that situation. I know that it had something to do with adultery. Um, I don't know if he had recently been accused of adultery and the church was choosing to overlook that because they liked his preaching, or if it was he recently divorced. Um, in some way, it in some way it it was it was not right. In some way, it was not right. Even if it's a, 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 an approved divorce, like Jesus allowed for divorce in the case of sexual immorality in uh, Matthew chapter 19, even if it's recent, that the pastor needs to step aside. He needs to step aside. Even if he's not engaged in sin, he needs to step aside for healing. The church needs to step in and try to help and heal him. But, uh, but this church wanted us to place our hands on this guy and affirm him. I was part of the, the group that went to meet. And I said, absolutely not. And I cited this verse. I said, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. I said, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm engaged in, you know, I struggle with sin just like anybody else as we're on our way to godliness and holiness, as we're making our way in that direction. But I said, that doesn't mean that I can approve of what the church seems to be willing to overlook in order for this guy to be your full-fledged pastor. Um, elders should not whimsically put their hands of affirmation in an ordination service upon someone. This person needs to be qualified. That's what he's talking about. Not just qualified in what they believe, but in how they live. 
Verse 23, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And so Timothy maybe was so conscientious that he didn't want to drink a little bit of wine, um, and uh, I mean, may, some have speculated about this verse. Maybe Timothy just wanted to set such a good example that, uh, that he didn't want to drink any alcohol at all, in spite of the fact that there was no other way to purify water back then. And so he was drinking contaminated water. He was developing stomach problems. And so Paul had to tell him, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. You know, it seems like, in, and from what I've heard, that was a practice that that's one of the ways that they would purify the water is they would put a little bit of wine in there and the alcohol content, I guess, is what killed off some of the germs. Paul was just telling him, hey, you know what? Um, I, I see you trying to really live, a, uh, you know, walk a tight rope and live a godly life in front of everybody, but uh, you're hurting yourself. Um, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Verse 24, some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. You know, some people are so godless that the judgment sees them coming. The day of judgment sees them coming. Those sins are already there. Everybody knows about it. But it says the sins of others surface later. You know, private sins, things that people were doing, saying, um, looking at, whatever. Some sins show up later. Um, Paul is calling Timothy to live a holy life. I mean, uh, I think Ravi Zacharias, you know, his sins showed up later. He died, and then it was found out that, uh, you know, he, he had been accused by quite a few people of, uh, of women of... Um, getting them to do things that were sexually, horrifically inappropriate, wrong, sinful, evil. It didn't show up until after he passed away, but it did show up, and it tarnished his name. Verse 25, likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Paul is just saying if, he, if, if Timothy was to live a good and a godly life, that it would show up. People would see that. And that was important because his congregation needed to not only hear him teach and preach the truth, they needed to see him live it out so that they would realize he took it seriously and they would follow. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we've read about how it is that we are to confront people who are in sin. Uh, we've read about how the church is to thoughtfully, wisely determine who it is that the church is to help and uh, why it is that they uh, should not be so quick to help others. Uh, we've also uh, read some, some more things about pastors and about pay and about how to deal with them when they're in sin and unrepentant sin and how it is that uh, that uh, you know they they need to live above reproach but uh, to to live in such a way that they're not bringing unnecessary harm to themselves by drawing too strict of a line there's just so much Lord thank you again for this word that you've given to us and we thank you also for your Holy Spirit who, opens our eyes and minds to see and to understand and uh, 
We pray that he would also, in whatever situations we're in, to show us how it is that we can apply these principles. They're in your word. They're important. You've given to us, given them to us to show us how to live our life and how to think. And so help us, Lord, in this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.